Welcome to the Woody Report. In this podcast, Washington and Lee School of Law Professor Karen Woody and host Tom Fox discuss issues on white-collar crime, compliance, international corruption, securities law and accounting fraud, and internal corporate investigations. From current events to topical issues to academic research and thought leadership, Karen Woody helps lead the discussion on these issues on this new and exciting podcast. The Woody Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we broaden out the group of participants on the Woody Report to include Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly. Karen talks about the early part of Elon Musk's attempts to acquire Twitter and his machinations that he engaged in prior to his initially turning down a board seat on Twitter. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the Woody Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode of the Woody Report, of course, starring Dr. Karen Woody or Professor Karen Woody. Karen, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be here. So, Karen, I thought uh, we could have some fun and be instructive as well if we have a few episodes dealing with Caremark and its progeny. It's a term that gets thrown around a lot today, and we typically call it a Caremark claim, but I thought maybe we could start with what was Caremark and how did Caremark create the Caremark claim? That's a great question, and one that is a very pertinent question these days in particular. So let's talk about what Caremark is and why we throw that term around. Um, Well, to start, I think we need to have a little bit of background about how the structure is uh, that exists about suing companies, and in particular, suing management and boards of directors. And so, as you may imagine, that's pretty hard to do. There's something called the business judgment rule, which effectively means that decisions of management and directors are given a lot of deference by courts, meaning courts never want to step in and tell a business how to run any of its uh, operations. They will not look at maybe poor business decisions in hindsight and say you should have done this differently. There's very much this understanding that we will let companies uh, and management run the companies as they see fit, And the only time we really will uh, step in is when we think there has been some breach of fiduciary duty. And that's usually your duty of care, duty of loyalty, um, against something that can rise to something like bad faith. So there's a spirit of deference that exists um, between the courts and businesses. And so when, imagine something has gone wrong in a company, There are a number of shareholders who'd like to sue the company for mismanagement. That is usually a claim that's hard to bring for the most part, unless there's a significant amount of evidence that suggests that the company and the board in particular and management really whiffed, really um, violated their fiduciary duties of um, things like not self-dealing, putting the company's, uh, the the, the, um, interests of the company first, that idea uh, is where we're, we're getting at. So Caremark um, was a derivative lawsuit. And what we mean by a derivative lawsuit is that shareholders are suing management on behalf of the company. So that's different than a direct lawsuit. 
in which shareholders sue because they themselves have been injured and they want their money back. A derivative lawsuit is one in which the shareholders are suing on behalf of the company, meaning they're standing in the shoes of the company to sue because the company is what has sustained the injury as a result of the mismanagement that they are alleging. So already right there, that's getting a little in the weeds about the procedure that is the run-up to these types of claims. You're standing in the shoes of the company, so you're speaking on behalf of the company, but also alleging that company management, uh, again, injured the company or certainly caused, uh, it's usually, you know, um, a, a loss of value, uh, essentially. So what Caremark is, Caremark is a case that comes in out uh, of 1996. Um, it deals with um, uh, this issue about directors who basically failed to show that they had set up any type of system of controls or monitoring. And in this case, it had to do with healthcare and the healthcare industry. What ended up happening there was that, you know, they essentially turned a blind eye to a number of the red flags that occurred in that, in that space. Um, and so what we get out of this really becomes a new standard of what is required in order to hold the directors of a company liable and individually liable, we should say that. Um, again, we're not looking at whether or not they made poor business decisions. The issue here is whether or not they had proper oversight of the company and its, uh, and its operations. And so what we get out of the Caremark case, again, I'm not going to spend too much time going to the individual facts of the case itself because those have sort of fallen by the wayside and instead the standard that emerges is, is what really is the long-standing, um, you know, imprimatur, if you will, of what, of what this case is. What we get out of the Caremark standard is really this two-pronged test. Um, and you can succeed under either prong. And the first prong is that, that the board has set up or there exists a system of controls and monitoring within the company. So we have to have a compliance program, some level of um, understanding the, the various risks that are associated with the business. That's the first prong. There's some sort of monitoring, and that, that monitoring um, runs all the way to the board. There's some board oversight there. And then the second prong is effectively that even if you do have, you meet the first prong, the second prong is that the board is actually meeting that, they actually are not turning a blind eye to what happens and what, what they've learned through that monitoring program. So it's not enough to say, sure, we have a compliance program, we have a system of controls and procedures in place and policies, if you're not doing anything about that or if you're actively, knowingly ignoring any potential red flags that that system un uncovers, then that also is enough to be a, considered a breach of fiduciary duty, in this case, a duty of loyalty to the company. And so what you have to show essentially is that that ends up being the equivalent of showing that the directors are operating in bad faith, meaning that's a lack of good faith. Um, they are consciously aware of potential risks and are not doing anything about it, um, or certainly have very consciously decided to not even look, not even set up a system wherein they would find potential risks or red flags. So from that, we have, again, it's a very exacting, it's a very hard standard to meet. 
But that kind of goes in line with what I've said before, which is it's always going to be hard to hold directors and management liable for various business decisions. And Caremark, again, made clear that it's still very hard maybe to meet this standard, but the standard got some clarity. We, got, we understood what it now means to succeed on one of these claims. So that's where we were in 1996. So I don't know if that's, that was sort of a long answer to your first question, but I think that helps set the stage for where we might go. So you used a, a term in, in being a good uh, tort aficionado. I want to throw another term in. But you used the term bad faith. And then you use the term gross negligence, or I'm going to throw in gross negligence. And I recognize it's not a negligence standard, but uh, when I first started practicing law, they had a big change in Texas around gross negligence. And the definition I learned in 1983 was the entire want of care. Or as a senior partner explained to me, really, 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 really bad, as opposed to just bad. Uh, Or really, 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 really negligent, as opposed to just negligent. And I've always kept that kind of standard in my head. So I wanted to ask you, in the context of you being a tort professor, how do you help uh, differentiate to students the difference between the negligence and gross negligence or uh, bad faith? And can is it even valid to, to say the entire want of care, which is what I learned almost 40 years ago? Yeah, it's a good question, and there's actually something that has been pretty heavily litigated in Delaware around exactly those seemingly, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say nebulous, but kind of hard to get our arms around what counts as enough that hits bad faith or what what rises to the level of just gross negligence. Um, I should say there's now also Delaware statutes that cover like the duty of care. There's section 102B7 that carves out this liability of when you you know will be liable for a breach of duty of care that is determined by gross negligence and duty of loyalty and good faith are sort of run together in, in, in a separate but you know parallel kind of silo is how I would see that but there are there's been a number of cases where they really are trying to say what is enough that that proves bad faith and we've seen a number of one of the most sort of famous involves the Disney company, a derivative um, uh, lawsuit against Disney. And that is, uh, I believe, from 2005. It was a little bit after Caremark, but they really tried to get their arms around what do we mean when we talk about bad faith? And so what they said there is there's um, a couple different ways to look at it. Is there's a subjective bad faith, meaning you had this actual intent, you know, you get almost to an intent situation to do harm. And then the other one is sort of the opposite, which is, as you said, this gross negligence. You don't necessarily have bad intent, malevolent intent, but we have here, again, just the, you know, utter failure to meet a a standard here. This idea that you're not doing what is asked of you in in your uh, job or your position as a director here. and so in between sort of those two poles, where we have all the way like, I'm intending to do some harm, I'm purposefully self-dealing, I'm doing something you know, with this intent to create some sort of bad act or certainly something that might injure the company, versus the other pole, which is this idea of like, well, I just have, I fell asleep at the switch here. Uh, I haven't really, I have, I've done nothing, you know, and one is not doing something enough here. And so that's, I think, what your question's getting at. And the answer is it's still, it's pretty tricky, again, to, to, to navigate. But Caremark talks about this idea of there are certain red flags or certain things that um, 
that provide evidence that there that show uh, that there is maybe gross negligence and or bad faith there. And so this idea of like, um, what does it mean to have a red flag? I mean, we'll talk through some of these cases that have to do with the Caremark standard, and we see that there are certain things that are pretty almost always a red flag. That usually is maybe some regulatory agency pointing out non-compliance with the industry standard things like that and if the board is ignoring that or purposely not um, handling that those are kind of things that again show that you might be in the care mark standard which as you say is this gross negligence and that bad faith sort of but in in that maybe sort of mix of all of that <laughs> I don't know if I answered that correctly but I, I think that's a, it's a hard question and one that that has gone to the courts often because it's hard to it's hard to have a exacting standard for for that because so much of it would be a case-by-case -case type basis a circumstance um, situation so Karen we had uh, the Caremark case decided in 1996 there was uh, maybe only one major Caremark claim case uh, that I can recall of note which was Stone versus Ritter and that case just basically affirmed Caremark and said yes this is correct statement of Delaware law and then we have had this explosion of Caremark cases, and we've had some successful Caremark cases, and I see the start of that as the Bluebell ice cream case, or as it was styled, uh, Marchand case. Um, I guess, uh, and I should say, the background facts were Bluebell ice cream is the third largest creamery, dairy creamery in America, had a listeria outbreak. Uh, three people died as a result of uh, contracting listeria and uh, the board had done really nothing around food safety and a shareholder derivative suit was brought and it got to the uh, motion to dismiss phase uh, what was it um, the other maxim i love is bad facts make bad law and we had some really bad facts here and i don't know if that's what moved the court but uh, we seem to have a shift and so it's a long-winded way of saying did we have a shift? If so, why? But more importantly, what did that shift mean legally? Right. So, so I, I guess I will clarify that to say someone was successful on a Caremark claim, which means, again, shareholders are suing on behalf of the company. Uh, in this case, it's Bluebell Creamers, as you said. And what they were successful in was getting over a motion to dismiss, which is typically what the defense will file outright, you know, Plaintiffs will say, we have a problem, here's our complaint, here's what we think the management has done wrong. And there usually is a sort of automatic motion to dismiss, get out of here, business judgment will cover this, you haven't met the standard of showing what you need to show under Caremark. And that's typically how most of the Caremark claims go, because as we know, it's a really high bar to get over this motion to dismiss. Um, and there have been, I think, since Caremark, probably almost nearly 20 Caremark claims cases brought in Delaware, and only five have been covered, have, have cleared the motion to dismiss stage, and those have all been in the last two or three years. Um, Marshawn was the first one of those, and so it did seem like this kind of watershed moment where the court thought, wait a minute, this is something we're going to take a real look at. And Marshawn case and the ones that have followed suit that have, again, been successful in getting past the motion to dismiss stage, they all have really bad facts, which I can't 
I, I think we can't deny colors some of the outcome here. And you're right. So I do think some of the bad facts here move this almost impenetrable care mark standard a little bit, an inch maybe, off, off of where it was before Marchand. And essentially what the court said here is, you know, with all of this sort of extreme amount of, not extreme, but sort of a pretty voluminous record of um, FDA sanitation violations that Bluebelt had from starting in 2009, and then the real outbreak in 2015 is what um, ended up killing three people and another seven were, were significantly ill, so it was a very, you know, it was a, it was a really big deal. And so for this reason, again, I think the, the extreme nature of what had happened um, definitely colors the background of the case. But then the other, I think, important facts here that the court leans on is, one, Bluebell had one product. This wasn't a Johnson & Johnson or, you know, Procter & Gamble, and one product had some, you know, baby powder that wasn't great. You know, it, this is the only thing you guys have to think about was your ice cream and if the ice cream is safe. Uh, so there's that. And then the other fact was, you know, this was regulated by, in the sense that the FDA had um, toured some of their facilities and had founded countless sort of uh, infractions with food safety compliance. And so the, but all those things put together seemed like, what are you guys doing if not following up on this, having some level of oversight, having someone who knows about food safety on the board, uh, looking into this, this would have been, you know, the most important critical and the only product that Bluebell has. And so, of course, you need to ensure that it, that it is safe for consumers. So I think you're right that the bad facts here certainly moved the court to grant this, um, you know, motion to dismiss. I should say at the trial court level, they granted the motion to dismiss and they appealed and the Delaware Supreme Court overturned that. So the Delaware Supreme Court said, I think we have enough here to show that there was uh, significant, um, you know, well, they should say, I guess I'm saying this in a very lawyerly way, but I think it is a procedural thing. The complaint did plead enough to show you could get past a motion to dismiss, that there is enough evidence here that the board did not have any system of controls or monitoring. Um, and in fact, they went on the first prong for Marshawn, meaning we don't see anything here that shows you're even monitoring this as opposed to having a second prong claim, which is, all right, maybe you have some controls, but everyone ignored them. So I, that's why I think Marshawn was actually a pretty big deal. Um, and the defense was essentially that, which is, yeah, we, you know, the FDA checks some things, we do some audits, like there is some monitoring. And some of that actually gets reported to the board because we have, you know, what else are we talking about in our board meetings? We talk about some operational, you know, topics. So we're doing enough. We're doing what Caremark requires, which, as we said a minute ago, isn't, isn't a lot. You just, you definitely can't be doing nothing. And here the court said, yeah, well, uh, this is the equivalent of doing nothing. You guys should have seen this coming. You had a number of violations already. And then, you know, the result of this is that people are died from your product. Like the, there's certainly enough here that shows that, again, the board is not taking any measures to, uh, ask about um, food safety. There was no one on the board who knew anything about safety, certainly no board committee. There was no process to report to the board for management when they had learned about the violations. Um, instead, the board sort of had given them some rosy outlook about some things. And, and so, 
you know, it was basically the court saying you can't just bury your head in the sand. You can't say we didn't hear about this for a while. And then when you did say, well, yeah, they, they report to us. We have enough here to meet the low, you know, the low bar of care mark. Court said, no, there's enough here. And so the result here is, again, a win in that they got over the motion to dismiss, which, of course, results in a settlement after that because none of these cases are really going to likely go to trial. And so the win really is that you have cleared the motion to dismiss stage. So yeah, I think, I mean, Marshawn really was, you know, a very, a very big deal because we had not seen any successful claims based on a Caremark standard because as the court has even acknowledged, it's one of the hardest theories to prevail on as a plaintiff because it's really, you know, there has to be some monitoring and then they're sort of paying attention. And if you have any evidence of that, you usually are okay. So that's why Marshawn was, again, like a, a, a big shift. And in reading the opinion, uh, the court makes clear it, it was somewhat aghast at the actions of the board. But was it really that, those two facts or those two Caremark prongs? One, there was no system of controls. And two, the board wasn't engaging in any oversight, which uh, led the court to its ruling? I think that's right. The, they said, you know, there's enough here. I think the court says that uh, there's enough to show that there was no board level system of monitoring or reporting on food safety running all the way to the board. So for that reason, I don't know if this was your question, there really was a first prong of Caremark, meaning you didn't even establish a system of controls as opposed to, you know, you ignored some red flags. I mean, we have that here too. I, you know, you could maybe, I think, be successful on either prong. But the idea that like, we actually don't see that there's any procedure or process or system of monitoring that, that means that the board has any oversight for food safety in particular. Uh, and so that's why that was, it was, um, that was, I think, a very strong statement by the court to say that. So, Karen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but uh, I hope our listeners will join us where we continue our explore, exploration of some Caremark uh, claims. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Woody Report. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. It was to help get the word out about this newest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to link to Karen Woody's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So if you have any questions, uh, you can follow up directly with Karen. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Woody Report.